This is the 3RRR-FM Uncommon Sense Podcast with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we discussed federal politics with Ben Altham from New Matilda. Then we had a chat with Professor Andrew Walter, Interim Director of the Melbourne School of Government, and he discussed all things Brexit. Then we had a chat with Dr Angela Hessen, Curator at the National Gallery of Victoria, on the exhibition that she's put together called Love, Art of Emotion, 1400 to 1800. Then finally, we spoke with Executive Director at Per Capita, Emma Dawson, on how the four-day working week could actually work. And you're listening to 3RRR. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I have with me in the studio, Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And he is here to talk federal politics. Thanks. I, I am here, Amy. You are. I'm here. With coffee and toast. Yeah. Thank God for that. Exactly. I agree wholeheartedly. So, Ben, um, one of the things that's been happening recently is uh, this company tax cut, which this it was actually one of the most important, um, well, it really was the, the key policy platform that they took to the election. Yes, arguably the government's only real policy that it took to the 26 election, 2016 election. Well, certainly it's most important one, as you say. Um, and they got half of it through on Friday. So after long negotiations of the Senate crossbench, they've passed a tax cut for companies under $50 million. So with a turnover of less than $50 million, they'll be getting a tax cut to their company tax that's phasing in over the next 10 years. Absolutely. And so we've We've had a lot of debate about the turnover of companies and what should actually, you know, be the threshold or, or the cap. And um, as you as you said, fifty million is what where we've got to. And the government has claimed that this is just that they've passed part of the com- full company tax cut. So you know, they they said that really this is what we needed to pass in the first term of government because this is a ten year um, scenario in terms of passing on the full company tax cut to large corporates, which will happen right at the end. What, um, you know, with this argy-bargy that happened between Nick Xenophon and the government, Nick Xenophon originally said that he would only support tax cuts for businesses up to a $10 million turnover. And now we've seen him move um, up to, to $50 million. What do you think about this, Ben, and, and how that affects, I guess, the budget bottom line, but also, um, you know, the companies that are included? Yes, uh, so Xenophon's done a deal with the government basically and in return for supporting the government's tax cuts for companies up to $50 million in turnover, he's uh, secured a series of kind of concessions um, and special one-off deals. Um, So, for example, um, there'll be a special payment to pensioners um, and people on parenting payments of $75 for singles and $125 for adults. And that's a one-off? That's a one-off payment, And what's that for, Ben? Um, well, it's being claimed to be about uh, meeting rising energy costs. Which has a lot to do with company tax cuts. Uh, nothing at all, I'd argue, yeah, but um, exactly. it was what was required to get Nick Xenophon's vote in the Senate. So there you go, that's politics for you. It seems quite populist. Uh, it does seem quite rather populist, doesn't it? Mm. Um, a handout to people. Um, look, I mean, I th- actually support um, giving money to people on low incomes like government benefits. I mean, um, it's interesting to note that it won't be going to people on New Start, so that it won't go to people getting unemployment benefits. And youth pe- allowance? No, no no youth allowance either. Yeah. Um, just pensioners um, and parenting payments and disability a disability payment, I think, too. Um, there's also $110 million uh, for a concessional loan for the government to loan to 
a solar power, a solar thermal power station in Port Augusta. So potentially we might see one of those solar thermal plants built in Australia for the first time. Well, that's promising. Um, yes, yeah, so just another of these deals that Xenophon cut with the government. Yeah. Well, do you know what? It's funny because he tends to not do deals. He doesn't usually do partake in horse trading. Um, but this seems oh, to I don't be... I about that, Amy. Well, that, that's how he sells his, uh, his capacity as a dealmaker, is that it's not about um, trading one policy for another. But this is what he has done. Right. Well, uh, Xenophon's one of the wiliest operators in the Senate, a very experienced senator, and he's he very, sure good, very good at these kind of negotiations. And, of course, he's got the numbers. He's got the sort of cross-bench uh, numbers with the three senators of the Xenophon party there where he's able to, to basically have the swing vote. So the government was able to get the Pauline Hanson one Nation votes as well as Xenophon votes and that was enough to get this uh, legislation over the line. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen that this is one of the few successes the government has had in actually compromising um, on their policies and then passing them. Yeah, I think the government was desperate for a win, any kind of win really. They've had very little legislative success um, really in this term of government. So they were desperate to get this one away and they were prepared to compromise to get at least half of their company tax cuts through before the May budget. So this was the last time that the Senate was sitting before it went into recess, before the May budget is happening. And Ben, they also tried to pass legislation um, to put the PATH mentoring scheme into into legislation to enact it. And this was the um, the policy that was floated, uh, I think, gosh, when was it now? Almost a year ago? Yes, it was announced in last year's budget. Yeah. Yep. And we haven't yet had it started, but it, it is now opened. It has been launched. Uh, it didn't get into legislation. So there are issues in terms of budgeting, um, but they're basically going to commit to pay uh, employers $1,000 to hire an intern, someone who is currently unemployed, um, and really, and pay them quite quite little. Um, well, they're not really getting anything at all, Amy. I think they get a $200 one-off payment for their internship and they will re- continue to receive New Start. Uh, but, yeah, it's basically an unpaid internship. Um, and so the government thinks this will help people get into work. But you could also argue that it's unpaid work. So mm. um, that's not exactly great for those employees. Well, there's some suggestion that it would actually tip these um, these people over into another bracket, which means they would lose more money of their benefit. Yes, well, in the bizarre way that Centrelink works, of course, um, any income you get is therefore tested. You get your income tested. So if you receive money, they take it away with the other hand. Um, And this is just sort of one of the things we've known for a long time that people on unemployment benefits actually face some of the highest effective marginal tax rates in the country. So um, because their, their benefits cut out at basically 50 cents in the dollar for every dollar that they earn. Yes, so perhaps instead of giving extra money for one-off payments, maybe we could raise Newstart. We could raise Newstart. That would be a very, very useful thing to do for Australia's growing problem of poverty, Uh, but clearly the government's not very interested in that. No. Well, that will be a a long, long trail to get to that point. But, Ben, also talking about Centrelink, we've seen um, Linda Burney has been prosecuting this argument about Alan Tudge and the fact that the Minister for Human Services, Alan Tudge, has, uh, she believes 
allegedly released um, this information that was about Andy Fox, who was um, a person who wrote an, an opinion piece about Centrelink and her experience um, with the robo-debt system. And um, and she uh, commissioned, I guess, some legal expertise or advice from a, a QC who said that uh, it's likely, without having all the facts at hand, that it could be a criminal uh, act. What do you think? Well, I think that Minister Alan Tudge is in a lot of trouble, actually. Uh, he could well be facing charges down the track over this. Because the AFP is currently reviewing this request. That's right. So uh, Linda Burney has referred this to the Australian Federal Police um, and she's then commissioned uh, an opinion from Robert Richter QC, a very experienced criminal barrister, to have a look at whether Minister Tudge broke the law when he released this private information of Andy Fox to a Fairfax journalist. And um, it doesn't look good for Minister Tudge... Uh, uh, you'd have to say that if the AFP do go ahead with their investigation, they could well be filing a brief with the with the prosecutor there. So uh, that's very much one to watch this space. Of course, a, a very political issue, and we know that the federal police tend to tread very carefully in such political cases. But prima facie, on the facts of the matter, it's hard to see how Tudge hasn't broken the law, frankly. Well, he relies upon the fact that he consulted lawyers in his own department and then, uh, I guess, puts that on them, that they, they gave him that advice, so he believes that he's correct. Well, he, he does say that, but then he's also refused to release the legal opinion that he relied upon, so we don't really know what the legal basis of his decision to release that information was, and, and Linda Burney and the ALP have called on Tudge to release that legal opinion, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll see that the Senate inquiry into this matter will actually probe that issue further. Mm. But the key issue here is that in order to release someone's information in that way under the law, Tudge needed a so-called public interest certificate. Now, he didn't get one. And that's, I think, the central issue in this case. And that's why he could be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And you say there the Senate inquiry. Um, there's actually public hearings happening around the country now. And mm -hmm. one's coming up in Melbourne. And that's something where a range of people can actually attend and, and share their experiences? It is open to the public, absolutely. I, I believe the Melbourne hearing is on the 11th of April, yep. um, but you can find that out uh, on the Senate website. Be definitely one to look at. It will also be uh, broadcast online so that the Senate will stream that, that hearing. Absolutely. And I think that's an important fact-finding mission um, to really hear from the different people who've been affected by this. Yes, we're likely to hear some heartbreaking stories of the way that Centrelink's been pursuing, uh, in fact, people who are innocent. Let's remember that, that these robo-debts are often completely in error um, and, they're, and they're pursuing people who are very vulnerable. So it is a scandal, I think, and the, uh, the Senate is going to uncover some very, very damaging information there for the government. Yep, so that's one to watch in the next couple of weeks to see what comes out of that. Absolutely. And Ben, now just finally, let's talk about housing because uh, I know this does come up quite often uh, and there is a great debate around housing prices, affordability and whether there's a bubble. Now, recently we have seen some movement in policy, but not from the government at all, uh, from other people such as APRA. Yes, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, not to be confused with the music royalties body that <laughs> gives money to musicians. Um, yeah, the Prudential Regulatory Authority has made a, a move late last Friday to uh, make it harder for investors, basically. So they've, they've sort of tightened the regulations around banks lending to investors. Uh, but it's still a, a fairly minor tweak to the, the sort of 
the policy settings. Um, and it doesn't seem to be having any impact on house prices, which continue to balloon. So we've seen uh, recent data showing that house prices rose 20% in a year in Sydney, which is an extraordinary figure, really, if you think about it. Yeah, and 16% in Melbourne. We're not that far behind. That's right. And so economists call a bubble, it's basically when the price of an asset inflates beyond its fundamental value. And I think most people would agree that that is exactly what's happening in housing. If you look at, say, wages, in this country, they're not rising at 20%. Prices for other ordinary things are not rising at 20%. Uh, There's no real fundamental reason why houses should continue to rise upwards and upwards forever. Uh, That's the definition of a bubble. And of course, what goes up can come down. And um, if we were to see the house price bubble pop uh, or even just deflate quite quickly, then that could cause a lot of trouble, a lot of economic trouble. Um, of course, what happens generally in these situations is the people that who have borrowed money for these houses get into trouble and um, indirectly then the people who've lent those those people money, which are the banks, they also get into trouble. So in the US subprime crisis, for example, we saw a number of banks go broke um, and that caused huge dislocations to the US economy. And we saw similar issues in Spain and also in Ireland. Mm, yes. And, and also that house prices have doubled since the global financial crisis. So if that's not a bubble, I really don't know what is because it seems like that is hugely distortionary. It, it almost would be off-putting for a first-home buyer or a real um, owner-occupier to want to spend such a huge amount of money when you're not sure whether that value will be maintained. Well, of course, they're not spending their own money. They're spending the bank's money. And this is why it's such a problem, because the debt that's being racked up by householders now is astronomical. Australia has some of the most indebted households in the entire Western world. Um, And the people that are going to be in trouble when this happens, of course, are the people who are in over their heads. So if the value of your property declines and you've got a giant mortgage, then all of a sudden, even if you sell that property, you won't be able to pay all of your loan back. You'll be underwater. Um, And that's a real risk, uh, not just for those people, of course, uh, but for the broader economy. Absolutely, Ben. Um, And finally, we have seen... um in, in relation to housing affordability, David Murray, who I believe he was the chair of the Commonwealth Bank for a while there. Yes, he was. He was also the chair of the Future Fund, the, the government's uh, sort of uh, sovereign wealth fund. And he conducted a Murray review. Yes, he's done a number of reviews of the uh, tax system over the years and also of housing affordability. So this is a man who knows what he's talking about when it comes to taxation very conservative figure, um, considered to be, you know, an old school kind of banker, you know, very much in that, that old sort of conservative frame, likes to mm. have all of his I's dotted and his T's crossed. So if he's warning about a house price bubble, you know that there probably is there something is, yeah. that's a play here. Well, he suggested that the government absolutely needs to deal with negative gearing and that it needs to uh, reduce it in some form. And and then the AICD, the Australian Institute of Company Directors, have come out and echoed those sentiments, Elizabeth Prowse there being the chair. So when you've got two very senior figures in the corporate world saying that negative gearing is distorting prices in the market, surely the, gov- the coalition would need to start thinking about doing something. Yeah, well, if your house is on fire, the first thing you would do would be to stop throwing petrol on it. And, you know, that's what negative gearing is. It's a tax concession for housing investors. Uh, And we don't give it really 
uh, in any other kind of, well, we do give it in other sectors of the economy, but there's clearly a case now for it to be wound back in housing. Um, and it's not just negative gearing, of course, as we've talked about here uh, a number of times, Amy, there's also the capital gains tax discount. This is the discount that you get on the tax on the capital appreciation of your house. Again, you know, there's very little justification in the current economy with the current situation of the housing market for that. And addressing those, by the way, would make a big impact on the budget, which is in deficit. So the government could kill two birds with one stone. Of course, to do that now actually poses some risks because that's the kind of thing that could pop the bubble perhaps and that's why the government and indeed the Reserve Bank are moving very, very cautiously. So the Reserve Bank could put up interest rates, for example, and that might also cool down the housing market. But that would affect the broader economy. It would make it. It would make uh, the price of money more expensive. Um, and so, you know, there is a risk that a rise in interest rates could pop the bubble or just cause a recession because that's often what what is the start of a recession is a rise in interest rates. So, uh, some real problems for economic policymakers. They've got themselves into a, a situation where it's hard to know what to do now. Absolutely, it seems like they're almost cornered. There's not a lot. Yeah, they've painted themselves into a bubble into a bubble. <laughs> yes, I An like that iron actually. clad bubble. <laughs> They've blown themselves into a bubble. I don't know. Let's mix all the metaphors yeah, why not? together. And yep. it's a, but it's a mess, you know, and it's a real problem. And I don't know exactly what the solution is. And I don't know if anyone does really. I mean, I think things could get quite ugly if, if the bubble does indeed deflate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's keep an eye on that too. The May budget is coming up. So that will be um, an exciting time for all political wonks everywhere. And I'm sure we'll be decoding it for everyone else. Yeah, um, I'll probably go up actually. I haven't quite made those plans yet, but it's on in about five weeks. It's always good fun. You get locked in a room with other journalists, don't you, Ben? Yes, I mean, some. it's probably some people's idea of a nightmare. But, yes. Uh, <laughs> it can be quite enjoyable. It can. It's certainly an opportunity to go over the government's economic policy with a fine-tooth comb. Mm. It helps you understand, really, what the government spends its money on and where it gets its taxes from. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for coming in and discussing federal politics with us. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. And you are listening to 3RRR, the show Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Amy Mullins, and I have with me in the studio Professor Andrew Walter. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hi, Amy. Very happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So, Andrew, you are at the School of Government. You're the interim director. And uh, we need to clarify here, you're not actually British per se. No, I'm Australian, born and bred deep in my genes. And yet you have a somewhat British accent. Yeah, sorry about that. I spent no, most totally of my fine. adult life in the UK. <laughs> As we said, you must have soaked up the language and the accent like a sponge. Yeah, a West Australian beach sponge. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, given that you have lived in the UK for such a long time, and, and it was semi-recent, when, when did you come over here? Yeah, I came here from London in at the end of 2012, uh, but I spent pretty much all of the time uh, between 1983 and then in the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, a pretty important time period too. Yeah. Who, was in, who was Prime Minister at that point? Well, I left when uh, David Cameron had been Prime Minister for a couple of years uh, since the global financial crisis hit and they turfed Gordon Brown out, uh, the, the Chancellor mm. that would end boom and bust, um, who became Prime Minister, and then David Cameron took over in the coalition government in 2010. Yes, and before that in the 80s, was that Margaret Thatcher? 
Yeah, I lived through Margaret Thatcher. And in fact, when I first arrived in 1983, there were still riots, anti-poll tax stuff on the streets of London and Oxford where I was then. Right. So, you know, have you noticed any difference between the the policies of Thatcherism and uh, Theresa May's time? Well, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's meant to be a more inclusive, harking, harking back to the old days of conservatism, so-called One Nation Toryism that's appealing to non-traditional voters. Um, and Thatcher, of course, in many ways was very different and quite, you know, a radical prime minister in a very different way, but taking... Uh, very taking the Conservative Party away from that old One Nation Tory approach. Um, Theresa May is bring, trying to bring it back uh, in many ways to something that I guess would have been more common in the 50s and 60s um, but I think in a deeply problematic and probably unsustainable way. Yes, because there is... Um We'll get to Brexit in a sec, but I just wanted to talk about the language that she uses because in Parliament she does use language that's all about inclusion and um, it's almost like wrapping everyone in a nice warm blanket. So on the surface it looks really inclusive what she's talking about, but as you mentioned there or alluded to, underneath there's a lot of division that's really involved with what she's saying. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, David Cameron had elements of this too. I mean, he was was not a Thatcherite in some ways he was closer to Tony Blair uh, and of course he was deeply despised by the the far right in the uh, in the Conservative Party and the anti-Europeans in particular he was seen as an urban liberal um, even though he uh, beneath the surface again with May uh, they pursued austerity policies um, and ended up blaming I think uh, most of the problems that flowed from that on Europe. Absolutely. So let's talk about that because uh, one of the key um, factors in Brexit people have said is austerity and the measures that are currently in place to deal with um, the British economy and uh, un- unemployment. Clearly, austerity measures haven't been working. Is that a fair conclusion? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, something like I think 91% of economists polled in the UK, I think that was an Ipsos Murray poll recently, agreed that austerity had been applied too stringently um, and that had severe costs in terms of low growth coming out of the global financial crisis that hit Britain particularly badly and very high costs in terms of un- unnecessary unemployment. Uh, so those have been Conservative Party policies and in that sense, Cameron, and may have been, you know, pretty close. So let's talk about Brexit then and what happened. So um, if just to recap, I guess, on, on the day when we saw this referendum on whether the uh, the UK would leave the EU, the European Union, um, because uh, you... And then you had two sides, the um, Remain side and the Leave side, and uh, Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage were very staunchly um, to leave, to Brexit. Um, and then we saw uh, people like... Um, um, the Labour leader, uh, what's his name? Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Um, leave, you know, not Many even... Many people forget his name. Exactly. He's very <laughs> somewhat forgettable, let's yeah. just say. Um, and and he's actually been re-elected as Labour leader, so yeah. he'll remain unforgettable or forgettable yeah. 
for a while. But, uh, you know, there were some fairly clear divides or, you know, between the leaves and the remains. It didn't seem like there were a huge amount of undecideds, were there? Um, well, in the party itself, there were a number of people sitting on the fence. Theresa May, in many ways, and she was a very lukewarm Remainer. Um, so she's switched sides. Mm. The, the, the major Brexiteers in the party, Boris Johnson, of course, but also Michael Gove, who both thought they had a chance. Um, and at the might, leadership as well. Yeah, um, at the leadership, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, pretty clearly in the case of Boris Johnson, that was the reason why he had also shifted from a pro-Remain uh, position to a leave position. So this is all about personal ambition in many ways. This is a, also a completely unnecessary referendum. Something like 10% of voters uh, on the eve of David Cameron's decision to hold the referendum thought that the European Union was among the most important issues facing uh, Britain and British politics. So this was not uh, a big issue for no. the electorate. It was purely intra-party politics within the Conservative Party and, you know, lots of ambition, personal ambition. So was it David Cameron who who agreed to this referendum in order to yes. quiet some of his... Um yeah. Yeah. The, uh, what, yeah. What the people who John Major called the bastards, um, yep. the anti-Europeans, mm. uh, who he could never fully control, and who were very disruptive in the final years of the the post-Thatcher Conservative Party government. So. Um, yeah, David Cameron thought, uh, and also he was deeply complacent in many ways about, uh, well, he thought that he would easily win um, and that this would be a way of resolving uh, that intra-party problem easily. So he, you know, he overreached. Not so, yeah, mm. exactly. And then I guess as part of this, we saw, a, you know, a rise of nationalism and this was more mm. about um, Britain's identity and somewhat harking back to older times where, you know, it was almost a bit of nostalgia for a Britain that was isolated and also an imperial superpower. You know, what kind of, how much of that was a factor in actually, you know, leading to a success in terms of the Brexit result? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think um, not just a little bit of nostalgia, I think this is deeply nostalgic. Um, I think indeed deeply delusional in many ways. A number of the, the Brexiteers who are talking about, uh, you know, a grand destiny for Britain in the future um, are really harking back to those, what they see is this golden age of British dominance. Uh, yes, Britain was the world's superpower, um, not to the extent that America achieved after 1945, but nevertheless the dominant power of its time and it's certainly a global power. But, uh, you know, Britain is now living in a world of rising new great powers, including India and China, of course, a resurgence Russia, uh, the United States and the European Union, the remaining 27, are not going to go away. In fact, if anything, they're more likely, I think, to accelerate uh, integration in the coming years. So there's a real danger that Britain actually will be left stranded in an increasingly unstable and potentially dangerous world. Mm, and stagnant. I mean, they mm. were actually reliant a great deal on colonialism and mm. exploiting other countries in order to grow their own economy, as well as the Industrial Revolution. 
Yeah, I think that's true. Um, up until 1945, uh, so Britain was a great beneficiary um, of its empire. But after 1945, the remnants of empire, I think, held Britain back. And it was Britain's move into the European Union after 1973, something that countries like Australia saw as a semi-betrayal of the Commonwealth and its its own destiny. That move into the European, well, as it was then, the common market in 1973... Um, actually helped to reinvigorate a stagnating British economy, which had been, you know, falling behind its European partners in the 60s um, and early 70s. And um, since then, Britain was one of the best performers after Thatcher. Thatcher Mm. did really achieve some necessary reforms and British growth and productivity growth and all of those things that determine real wages actually you know, they were all pretty positive um, right up until the time that Britain signalled it was going to leave. Yeah, so let's talk about what the benefits are of being in the EU and how this then relates to leaving the EU because mm. the European market is a single market. So um, as you say, there are 27 members in that market. Plus Britain. Plus mm. Britain and also others lining up to get into the market. Um, and there are four, uh, I guess, freedoms within this EU and and they caught they're about the freedom um, of movement of goods capital services and people so one of the ones that people would very much um, you know be able to relate to is that if you have an EU passport you can travel anywhere within the EU you can also live and work and study in other countries way more freely than you could have otherwise done yeah so in terms of then extricating Britain from this there you know there are courts that they've now subscribed to to say you know we'll be subject to your laws and regulations um, you know there there are trade deals that are part of the EU that they will then now not be part of at just how messy is this going to be for Britain incredibly messy so this is not just about foreign policy and trade policy which has uh, caught a lot of the headlines and of course immigration uh, the the fourth fundamental freedom the movement uh, freedom the movement of peoples this is all about the fundamentals of domestic regulation so there's the so-called great repeal bill um, which is uh, beginning to weave its way through parliament now, which is essentially translating uh, literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of EU law, uh, which applies directly in Britain, as in all of the other 28 member states, um, into domestic law, because uh, they'll essentially have to ensure that British legislation uh, is on the books uh, as of the end of May 2019, when Britain will leave so there's a smooth transition in, yeah. in the legal sense. But this this touches pretty much every aspect of daily life in Britain, um, not just for the government, but for people thinking about uh, the regulation of food, uh, the regulation of the environment, the quality of water required on British beaches, uh, all of which is potentially going to get worse. A lot of uh, Tory members uh, in government are talking about a bonfire of regulations to make Britain into, you know, Again, Britain's great future, some kind of 19th century utopia, free trade, low regulation, small state. Um, What's that going to do to the local environment and and many other things that Brits uh, essentially take for granted and don't fully understand are actually part and parcel of European law? This is quite disturbing, isn't it? And also something like the NHS, which is their version of Medicare, Mm. our Medicare, 
that is something which has been a corner piece or a, a real um, sense of source of pride for British people. Yeah. How is that affected or have has been undermined? Well, you know, I think the first way, I mean, this is uh, the National Health Service, obviously a very important part of the British budget. Uh, so in terms of government spending, um, the UK Treasury itself, uh, before the refer referendum estimated, and I think this is pretty much a consensus view among reputable uh, economic policy consultancies and universities and so on that did studies, they estimated that over the next 15 years, Britain would be over 7% worse off in terms of real output, uh, so lower incomes uh, as a result of leaving uh, the European Union. So that's going to flow through to the bottom line in terms of tax revenues and the availability of money, essentially, to put into projects that are already creaking. Um, in fact, some people would say that the NHS is uh, pretty severely under threat from austerity and lower government spending targets already. So the prospects on the fiscal side are pretty poor. Then you get as you were saying earlier, the freedom of movement of peoples um, and the NHS is a massive importer of foreign immigrants. Now, it has to be said that many of those immigrants come from outside of the European Union. So if you, you, know, if you go into a British hospital, uh, you're quite likely to be treated by an African nurse or an Asian doctor or whatever. So, so Britain will continue to need to import uh, large amounts of people into its NHS and indeed many other services. Right. Well, let's also discuss um, some of the other aspects of this because um, Theresa May, she signed the letter to say, to notify the EU that we're officially leaving. Obviously, everyone got the memo through the news and everything else that this was happening, but we had to wait for the official um, Article 50 to be triggered, which yeah. is... Um, via means of notification, written notification. So Theresa May has just recently done this only a few days ago and we've seen, um, I guess, well, she wrote a letter and she said this is what we would like to happen when we're Brexiting or leaving the EU. And she did set out some um, preferences for the ability to simultaneously um, Brexit or arrange those affairs, so disentangle themselves from the EU at the same time as negotiating trade deals uh, bilaterally with various countries in the EU. Now, what was the response from the European Union to these kind of demands or, or requests, whatever your perception is of them, from Theresa May? Hmm. Well, I think it was a pretty sober and mature response. Uh, Donald Tusk, uh, the recently re-elected Polish president of the European Council of Ministers, uh, said, you know, essentially, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a phony war now for nine months since the results of the referendum. So everyone's been expecting this and Theresa May herself promised that she would trigger uh, so-called Article 50 uh, to leave uh, by the end of March. So everyone knew this was coming. They also had a pretty good idea of what would be contained in it. A couple of crucial things. One is that Theresa May admits in that uh, that Britain will withdraw from that massive single market to which 50% of British exports go. So that's... A, that's huge. That, that's huge. And that's a, a, it's also a big retreat because you may remember that during the referendum campaign that people like Boris Johnson essentially told the British people that they could have their cake 
mm. leave Brexit and be relieved of all these so-called onerous restrictions on British sovereignty and at the same time receive all of the benefits of membership, including remaining in the single market. That was a lie um, and uh, essentially that lie was admitted, though not explicitly in that document. The other thing is that Theresa May says that they want a BAFTA, a big ambitious free trade area for Britain. So they still want, you know, so there's still the remnants of that objective. But of course, the Europeans won't give Britain that without Britain being required to accept many of the costs and responsibilities of membership too. So... The Brits are still trying to have their cake uh, and mm. eat it. They won't be allowed to by the other side. No, and I mean, part of it is that they need, they have, a, I guess, a bill, an exit bill um, yeah. to leave in the first place because they have a great deal of uh, financial commitments that have already been made. Um, this bill, uh, the huge bill, yeah. it looks like it's about 60 billion euros. Yeah. That's that's massive, isn't it? Fifty billion pounds. That will yeah. come down. That okay. number. Uh, so that's an opening bid on the yeah. part of the Europeans. But remember, Britain has um, made long-term commitments uh, to, for example, pension provision for uh, European civil servants. Um, a small state. I mean, again, the idea that there's this massive state in Europe which is controlling and regulating uh, all of the twenty-eight members is a myth. Mm. Uh, but it was one that was exploited quite effectively. Very effectively by yeah. the levers in the campaign. But nevertheless, there's a substantial pension um, obligation there, for example. So, And many other things that Britain, collective institutions that Britain has uh, committed to funding um, for the past four decades. So it can't just walk away from that. So Britain will have to cough up tens of billions of pounds, mm. um, but it will come down from 50 billion pounds. So this is all about negotiating. Yeah. And this is negotiating a divorce before mm. they're thinking about what sort of relationship uh, will be you know, there in the future. That's really quite disturbing mm. to think. And and the other part about this is that some people don't want to be divorced. Yes. Uh, so Scotland in particular was very strongly remain and they yes. didn't want to leave the European Union. And as we uh, would recall, they had a, a referendum about um, independence. So potentially in, I think it was 2014, they had a referendum. Yeah. Um, and 55% of uh, Scottish people wanted to stay within the UK. Um, that now in terms of polling has actually moved a bit more to something like 50-50. Yeah. And, uh, and Nicola Sturgeon, who is the leader of Scotland within the UK has actually indicated that they, they want to have another referendum on independence. What yeah. do you think that uh, effect is going to have on the negotiation, but also just more broadly for Scottish people? Yeah, well, I think um, a, a new referendum which would leave, uh, which would lead to a, a leave result for Scotland is by no means uh, certain. So it's pretty evenly balanced, I think, as you say, that um, there are now more Scots who feel as though effectively they've been betrayed yet again by the Conservatives. Remember um, that the the Tories, the Conservatives, only have one seat in Scotland. They effectively have no representation in Scotland. They do not represent the wishes of the Scottish people. So the Scots see Westminster essentially as a foreign parliament um, that's imposing a massive decision um, on the Scottish nation that they don't agree with. Of course, that's also true for Northern Ireland and collectively for the City of London, uh, which also mm. voted strongly in favour of remaining. Um, but they don't have the options uh, that are available to the Scots. So 
I think for the Scots, um, this is about remaining relevant. This is about saying you can't take our voice for granted. You can't take our um, our cooperation for granted. You need to include us in the negotiations as they're going to proceed over the next year and a half with the rest of Europe. Our interests need to be taken into account. Yeah, and but the response from Theresa May has been quite dismissive, has it not? Yeah, she by precedent has the right to refuse to allow Scotland a referendum on the question of leaving the UK, which is quite extraordinary mm, and you might, you might see as a little hypocritical um, when uh, that's exactly what the Conservative Party imposed unnecessarily on the rest of Britain. Yeah, well, what do you think, I mean, should Scotland actually end up, uh, I guess, the nationalism building in Scotland? Mm. Because, I mean, there's a huge history there between England and Scotland uh, in terms of the the sense of identity as well as politics. Mm. Um, But should they actually want to remain in the EU? Just how messy does that make it for them? Because, I mean, they will presumably have to apply separately to stay in the EU. Yes, yes, they would. So it wouldn't be an automatic um, entry um, or a remaining uh, in the EU for Scotland. They would have to apply separately and that would itself involve extensive and protracted negotiations. Now, I think the rest of Europe would be fairly welcoming Mm. and Scotland potentially could get quite a good deal. Um, But nevertheless, I think in the short run, this is about remaining relevant and giving Scotland some leverage in the negotiations. that will be going on over the next year and a half. Um, You know, obviously the Scots want to remain in the single market. They're quite dependent on the rest of Europe um, in terms of exports and uh, for their poorer regions uh, like Wales uh, in particular, which will be a very big loser. So so the region... And yet Wales voted to leave extraordinary yeah. uh, so this is a this is really interesting i find as a so i'm a political economist so mm. I, I think about the ways in which politics and economics interact and the some of the biggest pro leave uh, constituencies in britain such as in wales uh, were also among those which were most dependent on the rest of europe in terms of their export profile but also in terms of the uh, receipt of european uh, structural funds yeah so it's similar to um, the Trump scenario where a lot of his uh, policies may negatively affect his core votership. Yeah, absolutely. So people weren't voting with their pocketbook. This wasn't, in a sense, what what political scientists would call an economic voting exercise. This was much more about the politics of identity. People Mm. essentially were willing to shoot themselves in the foot economically. Um, And as I said earlier, the the Tories are beginning to admit this, that there will be substantial costs, economic costs, from leaving um, the, the potential benefits, you know, big free trade deals with China and India and Brazil, all of the sorts of things that, you know, supposedly will be far easier for Britain, a much smaller nation uh, on its own uh, to achieve. These are, you know, these will be protracted, difficult negotiations. The the prospective negotiations with Australia and the United States will be difficult. So these are all, you know, to be determined just how how wonderful this future for Britain is going to be in terms of its potential benefit. But the costs are going to be very substantial and Britons will be feeling this for the next generation, particularly the younger generation of Britons. Absolutely. And just finally, you've touched there on identity. What do you think the implications are of this now for the British population and their struggle for, you know, I guess, re-establishing some control or order on their identity? Because to me, it seems like it's a lot about a feeling of being out of control, that they Mm. feel like there's 
other people from other countries interfering in their country and that they don't have a sense of control over who they are, what they stand for anymore, or at least in a relative sense to how they were in the past. Where does that leave the British people now in terms of their sense of identity and uh, and how that might affect the future? Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously, if you ask people that question, you'd get many, many different answers. So for some people, um, and I wouldn't, I'm not among those people who say that, you know, all this was driven by a sort of nativist, uh, anti-immigration, quasi, you know, racism. Um, There are certainly some elements of that. Uh, People associated with the National Front, um, historically, people associated with, or at least some people associated with UKIP, the Independence Party. Uh, did adopt that stance. And so for them, identity is essentially about reducing immigration. Um, The problem is, as we were saying earlier, that Britain is a nation very dependent on immigrants. And again, uh, the Tories have admitted that Britain will continue to take, need to take large numbers of immigrants from the rest of the world. They would like something approximating the Australian system, which would allow them to be more selective about who they bring in, people with more skills in the right kinds of areas and this sort of thing which, of course, the fourth freedom of people's uh, movement uh, didn't allow Britain to undertake. For other people, identity means more about, you know, that, again, that nostalgic view of Britain not being subject to decisions on the part of the European Court of Justice, um, European regulations, you know, all these myths about, uh, you know, the length of bananas and these sorts of things (laughs) that supposedly Brussels um, regulates on a daily basis, which it does. But um, for many people, much of this is about just autonomy and the ability for Britain to set its own way. Now, it may well set its own way, but in a much more uncertain and dangerous world. Mm -hmm. Um, And how much better that will be is very much to be seen. It sure is. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for coming in to discuss this. Mm. It's just been so insightful. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we can get you back when, as things develop yeah, to discuss to. it again. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. Wonderful. Uh, that was Professor Andrew Walter, Interim Director of the Melbourne School of Government at the University of Melbourne, and uh, he's a political economist and uh, he's written some pieces um, on their Election Watch page as well on the University of Melbourne's page because there's a lot of European elections coming up, so stay tuned for the developments in France as well. And you're listening to 3RRR with Amy Mullins. The show is Uncommon Sense and, as promised, we have a very special guest, Dr Angela Hessen, who is curator at the National Gallery of Victoria and she joins us to talk about their latest exhibition on love. Thanks for joining us, Angela. Thank you so much for inviting me, Amy. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, I got the uh, the chance to have a look at this exhibition on Saturday and it was just fantastic, really beautiful. Congratulations, firstly. Oh. Look, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to work on and it's um, it's actually quite easy to make a, uh, a beautiful exhibition when you're working with, with such an amazing collection. So you are, right? Yeah. Because this uh, this actual, um, this exhibition covers a huge time period. So we're looking at um, 1400 till 1800 and there's a great deal of, uh, of movements within that time period. And to kind of 
give people a sense of what that visually looks like because, um, you know, it's it's hard to imagine what was happening in 1400 and what art might have looked like at that point. But in, in this exhibition that, that really does kind of move through these time periods, but it isn't chronological, it's thematic, um, what, what kind of styles are covered off artistic styles? Well, look, it is actually an extraordinarily broad period and it's also brought in another way in that we're covering all of Europe with it. So there is obviously distinct differences in what's happening in in Northern Europe, for example, to what's happening in Italy or in England. Um, So stylistically, we really move from late medieval right through to the end of the exhibition where we're sort of coming right back into the middle of Romanticism. So it's a, it's a very broad period and within that then we also we also cover Renaissance and Baroque and Rococo. Um, and the other thing that was really exciting was being able to work across all of the different departments at NGV. So we've drawn a lot on paintings and sculpture but also on decorative arts, costume, jewellery, furniture, textiles. So within what that looks like it's really an extremely broad range and it's very lush right because uh, first of all it's the the walls are painted black so that's kind of a rare thing in a gallery nowadays is to not to walk in and it not be either white or some kind of pastel or strong <laughs> color right yeah this is true i mean it's kind of it's the opposite of the the white cube which was part of what we really wanted is if you're curating an exhibition about emotion it has to be evocative you have to feel it other in in a in a visceral way as well as experience it intellectually and the thing that that black does is it's actually people think of it as a cold color but it's actually very very intimate and quite enveloping you know we think about darkness in terms of privacy and secrecy and intimacy and so it it creates a very intimate and and quite beautiful space and practically actually most artworks look beautiful against black as well it it really brings together a lot of quite disparate styles um, in a way that a lot of other colours don't. So it's, it was useful. <laughs> it does, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because, as you say, the, the styles are quite disparate and you can see that in the Baroque there's a great deal of light and shade and there's huge amounts of, as they say, chiaroscuro. Absolutely. All about dark, darkness and shade and light. And that's, that then contrasts with some of the Rococo pictures, which are very um, pastel and vibrant in, in different ways and you know you've got the gilded frames I'm thinking particularly the image that I've posted on on my Facebook um, for the show which is uh, it's by Francois Boucher and it's called the agreeable lesson yes yes and that is actually just uh, just quietly one of my favorite um, artworks in the National Gallery's permanent collection and it comes in a um, in a pair but it also actually started off in a four. So there used to be four, I understand. Yes, yes, it was one of a series and they are all quite theatrical in in subject, as many Rococo paintings are. Um, And the the pair to it that we have at the NGV is called The Mysterious Basket, which is another wonderful title, I think. Um, And what they are is really... um, they are emblematically kind of Rococo paintings with a very frivolous pastoral subject matter with this imagery of of a kind of imagined rusticity I guess and I say imagined because of course these are designed very much for aristocratic 
upper class consumers and viewers and they're very much about the idea of taking the pastoral taking the idea of simple country life but making that aesthetic and pleasurable it's not about the grittiness of rural labor it's very much about ideas of leisure and the countryside as a site of of pleasure and seduction and, and enjoyment because this is one of the aspects of love right um and it's in the first part uh, which is anticipation so in this in the gallery and that is a it's that focuses a lot on romantic love um, in the first part it because does. you're anticipating this. And I guess Rococo is well versed in anticipation and um, erotic scenery. And, and it's very much alluded to but not directly depicted in, in a very overt way. So, for example, in that um, that artwork, the first that we're describing about the agreeable lesson that's, um, that's in there, and it's, when you enter, it's on the right, on the first right, um, and there's also a porcelain that, that is based on this painting. Yes, Chelsea, an English porcelain. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so, and as you can see, then it proliferates in terms of Roco- the Rococo style throughout uh, Europe, in, including Bavaria and Germany as well. But we see that um, there's a, a shepherd and a shepherdess and they're very idealised and certainly you would assume, as you say, not really realistic in the sense of um, how real life is in the country. And it seems to be more of an outlet, like a way of um, expressing, you you know, kind of things that you couldn't necessarily express yourself. Um, You know, it was... In the, in the court of Louis the 14th and 15th, although there's a, a great deal of debauchery and um, things happening, uh, it seems like even at the time this is one way for people to express their sexuality and sensuality uh, by, you know, engaging with these kinds of paintings and prints um, that have pictures of, you know, nudity or pictures of romance and, and idealised scenery. Yes, quite. I mean, this is what we see very much throughout the period of this exhibition is that there are certain acceptable frameworks for expressing sexuality, um, which usually implies some degree of distancing from people's ordinary everyday existence. We don't usually see very many direct vernacular representations of sexuality. The exception to that is in the Northern European, in the in the Dutch and German, there are some really good examples of that. Um, but certainly with Rococo, I think, in a slightly similar way to the ways in which artists can use classical allegories or narratives or indeed biblical ones by using a, a kind of imagined pastoral that this is something that's happening among the innocent peasants, <laughs> imagined peasants. This is a kind of a form of sexuality that's associated with with innocence, possibly with a, a kind of lesser idea of civilization, And so there's a, a degree of othering that's happening within that. So yes, certainly it's, it's providing a, a way of expressing sexuality and also within that a number of symbols and metaphors and ciphers for it. So in the example that you've mentioned in, in the enjoyable lesson, we have um, the shepherdess is receiving a flute lesson. Um, and, you know, there's a very obvious kind of element of phallic symbolism there and we see um, and the same thing I mean even in the equivalent with the basket you know we see a lot of pouches and purses being used in the same way um, anything that's really sort of longer than it is wide is potentially <laughs> <laughs> potentially phallic in this yeah. period as well so yeah 
Um, yes, so there's there's a way of, of communicating sexuality without without doing it directly, but in a way that it is is very clearly recognisable to a knowing audience. Mm. Yeah. And then if we move into the, the, I guess, the little round, which has many depictions of Venus, and this is one of the expressions of sexuality as well, it's probably more overt um, in this case. And we say this fantastic um statue of Venus, which is yet yeah, really beautiful. Um, could you just share with us some of what makes that statue unique? Oh, so the, the Aphrodite, he's in the central section there. And, and when I was thinking about that part of the exhibition, I, I really wanted to produce a kind of temple of Venus in a way, which, of course, in the classical context, Venus is a tremendously important goddess. She's an intercessor in, in romantic affairs. If you want somebody to fall in love with you, you might make an offering to her. And Venus, for all that she ceases to be worshipped in a, in a literal sense, never really falls out of favour throughout the period we're looking at. She continues to be represented. And in the 18th and 19th century, with the, uh, the nostalgia and romanticism and the cult of ruins, there is a real revival of interest in ideas of the garden temple of Venus. And so the statue that we're talking about is actually an Aphrodite because she's, she's from the Greek tradition. And what she is is an assemblage of a number of fragments. So the base is the earliest part, which we think dates to the second century. And there are two other also older components, so the head and part of the torso. But these have been remodelled with much later additions to make a complete figure from what were once three separate figures. And as part of that process, the silhouette of the figure has changed substantially. She has much larger breasts than you would expect on a classical figure. And this, of course, reflects the Edwardian Victorian taste for hourglass figures. So there's a really interesting sense in this one object. She is a kind of encapsulation of the afterlife of of art and objects around that theme of love, the ways in which expectations about imagery of desire have changed, ideas about femininity have changed. Um, so she's a, she's a fascinating kind of case study in that. And of course, the history of how she came to be in the National Gallery is interesting too, how these objects cross continents and how they are collected and conserved. Yes, because it is really quite interesting that they have such a fantastic European collection. And this really is about Europe and, and and like the focus on love and how it's expressed in European art. And I was interested that one of the um, very small works, just when you're kind of exiting the anticipation section, I think it's near um, narcissism and it's focusing on self-love, I guess. Oh, yes. Yeah, which is a great section. It's fascinating <laughs> to look at. Um, and there's this one, um, you're going to have to correct me as to exactly how you would describe it. It's like a miniature. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, by Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. Vigée Lebrun, yes, yes. One of my favourite works in the exhibition. Um, and I actually sort of squeezed it in because it is late. It's technically 1830, but we can do a kind of long 18th century for the purposes of this, I of think. Of course. And uh, being a woman who well, is a is hugely talented painter. Hugely talented. And she's actually our only named female artist in the exhibition, which is you know, unfortunate in many ways. I say named because the reality is that there are probably a number of female makers. Um, the textiles and certainly the wonderful stump work that we have in the later part of the exhibition would certainly have been worked by a female maker, but names are not attached to it because, of course, um, women's, women's creative work is not 
privileged in the same way that men's is in this time. But um, Vigée Lebrun is a real exception to this. She did put her name to her work. She was trained. She was um, accepted by the Royal Academy and she was a particular favourite of Marie Antoinette, um, so much so that she was actually pretty much forced, forced into exile at the time of the revolution. So close was her association with that family and proceeded to work at, at royal courts all around Europe and produced, you know, the most extraordinary work. She's an amazing portraitist. Um, the ways in which she renders drapery is just just incredible exquisite. exquisite and this little miniature is very beautiful because it's a there's something about miniatures i think generally that carries a particular intimacy there is something the idea that you need to be close to them that you often touch them um that you that you have to lift them and 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 bring them close to your face you know there's something that's that's quite different i think mm. to a large-scale portrait and within this it's very playful as well she's she's depicted herself looking back over her shoulder and her dress is falling away so you've got this beautiful kind of porcelain skin and it's painted on ivory which of course has its own luminescence so when you put watercolour over ivory you still get some of that gorgeous sheen coming through which gives a wonderful sense of kind of dewy skin it's very very fleshly medium so yeah, it's, a, it's a gorgeous thing it is beautiful and yeah. she has painted herself as an artist painting exactly. in, the, in the miniature exactly and she's painting Cupid <laughs> aptly enough for Absolutely. the exhibition yeah. and there is a, a wonderful self-portrait similarly um, by herself in the National Gallery in London and that's obviously on a large scale mm. but it just shows that there, the self-portrait and the way that um, this kind of comes into love is really interesting because love is multifaceted and it's not just a romantic love which is what this exhibition really brings out and the history of emotions of which you're, you know, a scholar in as well, mm. um, you know, really adds a lot of richness to this topic. How have you, um, throughout this exhibition, incorporated, I guess, the many um, expressions of love and kinds of love? Well, that was actually one of the primary intentions of this exhibition was to think about broadening out that definition of love. And certainly for the Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotion, which is the, um, the particular research centre that has funded the exhibition, um, and has collaborated with the NGV on it. The idea of thinking about the complexity of emotion is really central to that and thinking about the ways in which we define and understand and express emotions, the ways in which that has changed over time is pivotal to that. So, of course, today we do have, as you mentioned, a kind of hierarchy in our ideas of love and certainly in, in popular depictions of love, we tend to position romantic love as, as the kind of the dominant, the pinnacle of, of emotional experience. Um, but of course, for much of the early modern period, this is a society which is very based on ideas of duty and, and broader social responsibility, responsibility to your family, um, often to your country, to the church very strongly. So these, in a way, less less romantic, less less sexy ideas of emotional experience are actually what are manifested in much of the art of this period. So we see religious devotion very prominently, and of course, particularly because for much of the period that we're looking at, most of the art is funded by the church. So um, that's a, a very strong element in the exhibition. Uh, also expressions of patriotism and, and uh, nationalism, sometimes in the context of dis as we see in the later part of the image exhibition with uh, imagery of Charles I. 
Also, I think we see ideas of narcissism and, and vanity, as you mentioned, materialism and the love of objects, which of course plays a big role in, in collecting um, and in building museum collections also. Uh, so it's a it's a very complex emotion, and this is one of the other things which, when you mentioned right at the beginning, that idea of choosing black for the exhibition space, many of the emotions with which love is ex- associated in this period are not what we might term positive emotions. You know, for every um, moment of of innocence and bliss and and joy and indeed compassion or charity, there are moments of regret and jealousy and sadness and loss. Um, and bitterness. <laughs> so, Hugely, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a very complex and, and often quite, quite dark emotion as well. It is. It's yeah. probably one of the, the emotions that you would think is the most extreme in the sense mm. that you can go very quickly from an, a feeling of elation and, you know, in the sense of romantic love, huge amounts of amorous feelings mm. and then, you know, very quickly be brought back down to earth and f- have feelings of questioning and doubt and confusion. And some of, it, some of that do- does kind of get reflected in this Oh, it does, profoundly. And I think it's interesting also in thinking about what have been the inspirations, the motivators for producing art and, and literature and music on the subject of love, that very often it's not the phase of contentment that inspires people. It's the phase of yearning and, and often unfulfilled, unrequited, unfulfilled yeah. love, and then memory, longing and loss, you know. And I think the most passionate expressions of, of that emotion are often in those phases that surround what we might what, what we might term the moment of love, the moment of fulfilment. It's the precariousness on either side of it that seems to really motivate art. It does. Yeah. And one of the things that um, that really is brought out in terms of the dark side of love and the the I guess the grief stricken side of love is in the final um, part where it's about remembrance and. Um, well, there are many pieces in that section that are great and should be highlighted, but there are some which I know you've paid particular attention to um, called mourning jewellery. And when we say mourning, we mean mourning the dead, not mourning in the morning. Yes. Um, and so well, could you kind of share with us, I guess, paint a picture of what mourning jewellery looks like and why it was created? Absolutely. Look, this has been one of my, my favourite parts of working on the exhibition um, is looking at these these objects again because there is that sense that they are tremendously personal objects in a way that, for example, a large-scale painting which was exhibited um, in an academic context or indeed painted for a, for a church or a, or a great house, these are very much about public display. Morning jewellery is all about the personal and it's about touch and it's about the senses. And it was produced... Um, really in part as an extension of the memento mori tradition um, which is about the idea of often wearing or having about you symbols of death as a reminder of human mortality the imminence of the grave and with that the imperative of living virtuously so memento mori is connected to a kind of religious context in its early incarnations and also to a certain extent connected to the relic tradition. So the idea that you can have fragments of a of a martyred person, usually, or, um, and that those fragments have a spiritual power of their own, that proximity to those, those fragments of the body can give you a kind of a spiritual elevation and a connection to the sacred. So morning jewellery was produced as 
objects of personal commemoration for after people had lost a loved one. Of course, this is a period in which mortality rates in Europe are extraordinarily high. Death is really an everyday kind of experience. And the rituals and objects around it really help to regulate the emotion around mourning and loss. So mourning jewellery often includes symbols of death. So things like the skull in its early in the in the 16th century you very often see the skull and and crossed bones underneath it hourglasses sometimes even worms to symbolize the decay That's of the body creepy isn't it it's very literal <laughs> it's very you know yeah and then as this tradition develops we begin to see also the names of the deceased inscribed often in enamel around the band of a ring or onto a pendant and the inclusion of hair as well. So this is the link to the relic tradition too. So sometimes the hair will just be a simple lock and sometimes it's very elaborately worked. Sometimes it's chopped up and mixed with glue and made into a picture, um, which might be a tiny little picture inside a ring or a locket. When we get into the Victorian period, which is actually after the scope of this exhibition, you see the hair being used as a three-dimensional medium. So it, it gets boiled and mixed with glue and plaited into three-dimensional bracelets and brooches, extraordinary objects. And there are all kinds of scandals around people sending away their loved one's hair and getting back something that's not quite the right colour. And, you know, have you actually had horse hair substituted? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a fascinating kind of area. And it's, it's, again, very much the sense that um, your loved one is still, to some extent, present with you um, as, as part of your ordinary, everyday experience. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I guess, one way to express your feeling of grief mm. whilst, uh, I guess, maintaining a sense of control and feeling secure and feeling like you really have still a connection with the person who is now no longer with you. Exactly, yeah. It's a, there's a real element of combining the public and the private in it because, you know, these are very intimate objects. They're worn against the skin. They're often worn over the heart, particularly in the 18th century where we have the the establishment of the heart as the site of romantic feeling. The idea of wearing jewellery over it is immensely symbolic. But they also are about the public expression of grief too. And we see um, as we move into, into the 19th century, this becomes particularly prominent, the idea that you announce your grief as well as feeling it. Mm. Um, and then when we look in that final room, there's also really... Um, what's the word, uh, really exaggerated or um, very bodily expressions mm. of grief. And there is a really um, beautiful large painting, which I'll let you describe um, in, in just kind of, it's fairly central actually to that room. And there's also a, a statue which is depicting um, a religious kind of moment between I think it's Christ and is it Mary? Yes. Yeah, yes. when he's he's off being being pulled down from the crucifix, I believe. Yes. Um could you kind of share with us those kind of the ways that the body is expressed in terms of grief and love um in these two artworks and and how you've put them together or contrasted them? Certainly. And I'm um, I mean that's really one of my favorite moments in the exhibition that I, I thought about from the beginning of it. One of the things that um when you're thinking about the history of emotions, a kind of sense of universality of emotion is a really interesting idea there. And the ways in which you can have secular 
and devotional works expressing a sense of common feeling and gesture is one of the most immediately apparent legible I think ways in which that is done so the painting that you're mentioning is Rainier's uh, Hero in Leander which is of course a very famous Greek myth of romantic martyrdom in which Leander swims out to his lover Hero every night across the Hellapont and uh she guides his journey with a lantern and on a particular night uh, the lair is a storm and the lantern is blown out and he drowns at sea and uh, the moment that's depicted is Hero mourning his dead body um, on the shore and he has a very beautiful long sinuous nude body with a bit of tasteful drapery and Hero is is above it with arms outstretched in this this symbol of grief and his arms are also outstretched below so there's a kind of mirroring of the two bodies and there is also within that of course the outstretched arms has a very obvious association of imagery of the crucifixion too so there is in this image of romantic martyrdom there are shades of the idea of religious martyrdom as well and the image in front of it that you mentioned is a really wonderful sculpture. It's a carved wooden sculpture which belongs to the National Gallery in Canberra, actually, and which we're very fortunate to have in the exhibition. And it is a pieta, um, which translates as, a, as an image of pity. And it is the Madonna cradling Christ's dead body um, after he's come down from the cross. And it's quite a roughly carved wooden sculpture. And this is one of the things which I think makes it so potent emotionally is that there is a sense of the form of the kind of curled, gnarled wood in it. You can see the shape of the tree. Mm. There's immense distortion in Christ's body. And it's like a, it's writhing and it's very um, disjointed and exactly, angular. Exactly, angular. And, and there is a way in which that kind of visceral, physical distortion really mirrors a sense of emotional torment in that image too. But what's wonderful when you put these two images together is the way they speak to each other in a sense. There is a real feeling, I think, of, of common grief and yearning. And, and I think... What we realise from this too is that very often, when I mentioned earlier this idea that the church is, is commissioning most of the art in the in the early in the medieval and, and the early modern period, that for all that these are devotional works, they are also about communicating emotion more broadly. The the vocabulary for it is a religious vocabulary, but the experience is one that I think anyone who has experienced love and loss can relate to in a way. And it's the same, I think, for images, images of, of maternal love in this period, um, for images of, of erotic desire. They may have a, a religious framework, but the feeling is far broader than that. Yeah, so, yeah. and that's what makes, I guess, this exhibition so relatable and relevant to now. It can seem often that because it, it's been you know, produced in such a, a, a time far beyond or before our time that it's harder to relate to. But I actually think that because the way in is emotion and it's about love and these really human themes that we consistently have all the time and, and really the complexities of human nature, that this exhibition is very accessible. In terms of um, just looking at and the representation of men and women in the exhibition, because I just wanted to kind of close off on that. Um, with the men, we do see um, some, some as you say, one of the, the men, was it Leander? Yes. In that painting who is fairly... Um, 
unclothed and he has that um, robe which is over the bottom lower half of him Mm. but then we also see depictions of saint sebastian who is one of those very commonly depicted saints that has um some eroticized undertones i guess in very religious settings yes and and so you know it's not just women we would often assume that it would be women who would be um in some ways objectified or mm. put up as an idealised form in terms of the naked body. But then we also see men, not to the same extent and generally not always as unclothed, um, but, you know, we, do, we also do see that happen for men. Could you kind of share with us, I guess, a bit, a bit more about how men are depicted in this exhibition? Certainly. And it's a really interesting point, actually. And it's, it's one of the things that I wanted to think about, too, was um, not necessarily just reinforcing our established understanding of what the what the gender power dynamic is in this period, because it's actually more complex than one might presume. And while we do have a number of quite traditionally passive feminine nudes, we have lots of scenes of classical abductions, etc., that, that one might expect. There is actually a full spectrum of of gender, in a way, expressed in this exhibition. And as you mentioned, one of the ways in which that is done is very often through images of martyrdom. And the fact that something is is a religious image absolutely does not discount its also being an erotic image in this period. Um, there is absolutely a, an established language for expressing eroticism through religious allegory. And St. Sebastian is um, not only a kind of erotic icon, but later on, particularly in the 19th century, a distinctly homoerotic icon as well. Um, I think the other thing we have to remember in the depiction of male and female bodies in this period is that artists working on the nude and producing female nudes for much of the period that we're looking at are actually working from male bodies. So they're very often working from apprentices, from young male bodies in producing imagery of female nudes. And people often comment on the the muscularity of female nudes in this period. And that's presented often as a, a sign of artists getting it wrong, that artists don't know how to draw a female body. I think it's often more complicated than that, actually. Mm. And I think that there is a um, there is a kind of covert homoeroticism that is expressed through these these often androgynous bodies, which I think reference both genders potentially intentionally and talking about artistic intention is is difficult always but I don't think we can discount a kind of a homoeroticism in that too and we do have a couple of works that also um reference that directly Dura's men's bath for example is a wonderfully yes, playful work funny. that does that does that quite literally mm. you know through innuendo but but heavy-handed innuendo you yeah. know um and likewise, I think in, in depictions of, of femininity for this period too, we see a lot of examples of, of quite strong, quite dominant femininity too. Um, we have obviously that, that traditional idea of the femme fatale and the dangerous idea of female sexuality. But we also have images of, you know, the goddess Venus. Female sexuality is something that is powerful and also productive. Um, so there's, there's not one accepted way of associating um, eroticism and gender, essentially, I guess. Which yeah. is so wonderful to mm. think that, um, you know, it, it has that full spectrum that we would often mm. associate more with contemporary understandings of mm. gender. And I don't think...
think we're possibly even very successful at doing that now. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think, I mean, it's a very obvious thing to say, but there, I guess there has always been a very broad spectrum of gender and of, and of sexual desire. And it's just that the ways of communicating this have shifted. Um, and so I suppose part of our aim is to try and draw out what those might be. And of course, also, the thing that we have to think about is that we're also working within a collection that has been acquired with particular priorities and um, museum collections are, are built um, built around the tastes of particular individuals at particular times. And that was one of the things that I found very much working on sexuality in this exhibition was that, for example, large-scale painted works with, with erotic content, large-scale um, you know, Renaissance nudes, for example, the NGV doesn't have a great number of them. So in some cases you're dealing with potentially um, the, the prejudices or the, or the preferences, I suppose, and also public expectations about what a national gallery should be collecting, what's a proper thing for a national gallery to be collecting. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is really a new way of exploring art in an exhibition in terms of this emotion, the focus on emotion and the various themes and aspects of emotion. How many works are included in this exhibition? And if people want to go along, how can they engage with the exhibition? So I know that you can you can attend for free. It's on the ground level um, to your right as you enter. But also, um, the, are there programs around this exhibition where people can kind of delve more into what's uh, represented? Yes, there certainly are. So we have a symposium, which will be from the 4th to 6th of May. Um, that will be held at the NGV and at the University of Melbourne. And we're going to be bringing together a number of uh, academics and curators from Australia and internationally speaking all around the theme of love so speaking about the works in the exhibition but also those uh, works from other collections which might be related to it. So that should be a really exciting event. And we're also thinking about the relationship between visual art and other forms, so music and literature um, as well within that. We also have a series of three masterclasses which are beginning next week, um, which are looking at um, histories of emotion, histories of love particularly. We have one which relates to um, love and history and objects, one which relates to literature um, and one which relates to music. And those are, um, those are terrific events which the NGV is, um, has, is holding in conjunction with, uh, with other academics as well, specialists in, the, in those fields. Um, and there are also a number of, um, there are tours that you can have with a voluntary guide and um, they're also curators floor talks. Which um, would be you. That's me, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yes, so I would encourage you to go onto the NGV website and have a look. All of those are, are listed there. Um, and it's a terrific opportunity, I think, to look at, the, look at the works and think about their context as well. And I think you asked how many. There are yeah. around 220 works in it's the exhibition. It's pretty big. It is a big exhibition, yeah. yeah. And there is a, an extensive catalogue, so if anyone wants to engage further, that's there too. There is. And the catalogue, we were very, very fortunate with the contributors to that. So um, we have contributors from... From the, from the National Gallery, but also international scholars who are specialists in particular aspects of the exhibition. Um, and it's a, it's a lovely, um, long and, and fully illustrated 
um, book as well. Which is quite rare to mm. have it all in colour and pretty much all of the works somehow depicted. Yes, yes. It was a, a real luxury actually and it's one of the wonderful things about the Centre for History of Emotion um, is that it's, it's allowed us to, to do that. So yeah. thank you to the government and the ARC um, Centre. Absolutely. Australian Research Council, is, it's mm. been enormously important in this and it's, and it's wonderful because this is a public collection. The NGV is a public collection and giving people the opportunity to experience it and learn from it um it's it's a, a real privilege I and guess, a great yeah. way to spend your afternoon or weekend mm. is thinking about love it is it is and and you know one hopes that um that in, that in the context of thinking about so many kind of dreadful negative things that we we <laughs> usually focused on that this is a a moment to think about something um, more more positive and more productive. Absolutely. Angela, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and insights with us. It's just been absolutely wonderful to have you in. Thank you so much for inviting me, Amy. It's been lovely. It's my pleasure. This is Triple R. You're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy and I'm very pleased to have Emma Dawson with me in the studio. She is Executive Director of Per Capita, a think tank, and um, she joins us to discuss a piece she's written uh, which is on the monthly website and uh, it's entitled The Shorter Working Week Can Work. Uh, It's time to take the four-day work week seriously. I couldn't agree more, Emma, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Great to be here. Now, this piece, um, it does come off the back of Richard Di Natale, the Greens leader's speech at the National Press Club, where he did raise this um, as a, a possible option. He didn't necessarily say in what form it would take and what the details would be, but he um, very boldly uh, <laughs> put forward this suggestion and and somewhat controversially if you talk to some business leaders about this topic. Uh, that's certainly true. <laughs> exactly. So, Emma, um, first of all, you do cite some interesting statistics uh, at the beginning of your piece um, from HILDA, which is uh, the Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia survey. It's a really um, significant survey that happens yearly, and it does give a fairly good or interesting picture um, of Australians and how they're dealing with their lives and the different um, social and economic problems that they're facing. Yep. So, um, interestingly, it it says that 16% of people who are currently employed would like to work more hours in a week. Mm -hmm. So, those would be people that you would consider underemployed. That's right, yes. Exactly. So, and that might include um, people who are casual workers Mm -hmm. who can't get enough hours, um, you know, and they might be shifts or rostered. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. it's a growing problem in Australia. So while the unemployment rate's currently around 5.9%, the underemployment rate's at around about 8.5%. And and that's anywhere between... It depends on on which statistics you look at, but it's anywhere between 1 and 1.5 million Australians that would like more work than they currently have. Um, And that's, that's... uh, a range of people that might be working, as you say, on casual hours, contracts or part-time and would like to go full-time or would just like a few more hours in the week to, to make ends meet. Absolutely. And would you say that that disproportionately affects women yes, at all? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So all the statistics show um, that it, part-time jobs are dominated by women, casual jobs are dominated by women um, and many of those jobs are in the lower, lower paid sectors of the economy. Caring industries such Caring as nursing, Caring industries, nursing, education. childcare uh, and, and 
and retail and so on. Um, some research that we've been doing at per capita recently has demonstrated that that has a massive impact across the life course. So not only do women earn less during their productive employment years, but they retire with around a million on average, you know, um, uh, uh, potentially a, a million dollars less income over their life time um, and a significantly lower uh, level of superannuation when they retire. And this is, it has been the focus of um, Senate inquiries and committees mm-hmm. to look at um, the retirement incomes of women and this growing issue because as we know we have an ageing population yep. that will outstrip our younger working population um, into the future. In terms of um, the those who also then the flip side of it is those who would actually like to work less. Yes. So I think there's a what what the statistics are showing us currently is there's an imbalance across our population. So while we have around about two million Australians that are either unemployed or underemployed, um, of those that are employed, around one in four would like to work less hours than they're currently working. So people that do have full time work often find that full time's crept up beyond the. 38, 40 hours a week, uh, they're working more and more hours and those hours aren't paid for. They're, they're tethered to their smartphones or their laptops and, and they're, never, they're never really off. And so their work-life balance is completely out of whack in the other direction. At the same time, there's a large pool of Australians that want to work more and can't get into the, into the labour force. So yeah. all of these things combined to show us that we've, we've actually got our working structures a little bit out of whack. Well, we haven't really been innovating in terms of our work days and the way that we structure work because, I mean, some people would say that casual work is an innovation, but I would possibly disagree. It's, <laughs> it's how you view that uh, magic word flexibility. Yeah. If flexibility works for the worker, um, then it can be a terrific thing. If flexibility is all one-sided and it's only for the employer uh, to basically have you on a hook and bring you in as and when needed but without any job security, uh, then it can be a very negative experience for people. Hugely. And we just did have Labor Day in Victoria. Yeah. And And that was about fighting for an eight-hour day. That's right. So back in uh, 1856 um, in Victoria, a group of stonemasons um, walked off the job at uh, Melbourne University, what is now Melbourne University, in pursuit of an eight-hour working day. And um, they managed to, through peaceful protest and negotiation, reduce their working hours from 10 hours a day to eight hours a day without any loss of pay. And that was done uh, over 100... coming up for 111 years ago yeah. now. Um, and similarly in the US in 1914, um, Henry Ford decided in his factory, which employed a great number of, of working class people, um, that he would reduce the working day to eight hours. And at the same time, he doubled take-home pay and he saw a lift in productivity. So historically, the labour movement has been a, a very much about workers coming together and saying, um, as we see the benefits of technological change, of innovation, innovation isn't something we invented in the 21st century. No. Um, those, how, are the, how are the spoils of those developments shared beyond the um, capitalist class, the business owners and shareholders? How do the workers take a share of that? And traditionally in Australia, we've had a very strong employment rights uh, framework. We've, we've had a, a tradition of having very um, good workplace structures and um, bargaining rights for working people. Uh, and salaries have, have 
and, and wages have generally kept pace with inflation. What we're seeing now actually is a huge shift um, over the last, particularly over the last 10 to 20 years, um, where real wages are not growing in the in the lower and middle income um, parts of our economy. Profits are growing. We've just entered on the 1st of April. We took the record for the longest period of economic un- uninterrupted economic growth in world history, um, 104 quarters or 26 years without a recession. So there's nothing wrong at the top end of town. There's nothing wrong in terms of profits for shareholders. CEO salaries, as we know, are ever-growing. Yeah. Um, but workers aren't seeing the spoils and they're not getting... Uh, real work, um, incomes in the private sector have grown just 0.5% over the last two years. So what we're saying uh, is if uh, workers are going to share in the benefits of endless economic growth, the kinds of technological change that we see transforming workplaces and, and reducing um, the number of hours or the time it takes to do something because of automation, then workers should benefit from that. And one of the best ways we could do that would be, see, gradually a reduction in standard working hours so that a standard working week became 30 or 32 hours a week over time. Um, that would have massive benefits across the economy. It would allow some uh, people to pick up more hours of work, people that felt they were working too much to work less. It would allow, um, perhaps really importantly, I think, um, a more equal distribution of unpaid labour in the home and caring work, the kind of work that disproportionately falls on women at the moment. It would allow us more family time. And evidence shows that when this has been tried, um, I referred to the Henry Ford back in 1914, but much more recently in Sweden, there was a, um, an experiment with a six-hour working day. The evidence shows that productivity doesn't actually decline. If uh, you measure the number of hours that people are actually productive while they're at work, whether they're at their desk for for eight hours or six hours, their productive time is actually between three and four hours. People are spending more time talking, making a coffee, surfing the internet. Uh, You only need to talk to any working mother that's gone back to what was a full-time job before she had a baby on a part-time basis and she'll tell you that she's doing the same amount of work in fewer hours. And getting paid less. And getting paid less for it. Absolutely. So it's entirely possible to do this without a drop in productivity. It just means that we have to shift our understanding of of the balance between um, salaries, um, wages and profits. Mm. Um, and we have to shift our understanding of what, what it means to share the spoils of a really um, strong economy in one of the wealth, wealthiest countries on earth. Well, you raised an interesting point there, which is that presenteeism and the idea that you have to be present and visible at your desk for a full eight hours at minimum usually. Mm. Um, nowadays, it could be longer or at least, um, as you say, on yep. and um, connected in yep. some way to your email and your phone. This is a real issue, not only just for employers who are nervous about flexibility in terms of working from home mm-hmm. or working off site, mm-hmm. that often is something that really um, gets them nervous yep. because they're not sure whether that is in their interest. Yep. And there's a great deal of mistrust um, between employers and employees. But one of the interesting things that uh, you raised, which is about women being part-time, mm. coming back to work part-time, is that um, there was a report done by Ernst & Young in Australia uh, a few years ago and it did show 
that women in the age group where it is in their childbearing years who are working part-time actually report that their unproductive time is 13% as opposed to others who are at 19%. So women working part-time are far more productive than They're a lot more efficient. Exactly, working full-time. That's right. They're getting to their desks, they're doing their job, they're doing their job um, in a concentrated manner in the the minimum period of time it takes to get it done because they've got other things to do with their lives. That's right. Um, But if you actually extrapolate that across the workforce and say, well, we won't require you to sit at your desk for eight hours a day. We'll require you to have a certain amount of output and measure people on output, then people will actually work more efficiently to get that work done in the time that they're they're given. Um, Obviously, there are there are some industries where this doesn't apply. So um, customer-facing jobs where you have to actually be on the premises to deal with a a customer in a retail environment or if you're a nurse or a doctor or a teacher, um, you can't work from home, you can't just take take the day off and and say you'll make it up on Monday. And so there are different um, measures that need to apply to different industries. But certainly with the vast... um, amount of desk-based roles that we have in our economy today. It just requires managers to think a little differently about how they measure productivity and how they measure output. Um, and in, a, in most cases, the insistence on judging somebody by the amount, they, amount of time they spend at their desk is, is very old-fashioned. It's not very sophisticated and it's not actually measuring real output. Not at all. And surely we should already be judging people on their um, output when it comes to performance reviews. Yeah. But I mean that, and that is one part of it. But there are also other parts, like it's more of a subconscious thing that if you're present, um, we can often just assume that you're working yeah. harder. And look, that's because the world of work that we live in has been uh, was created uh, in a time past when men went out and 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 did jobs, um, particularly in the middle class. Working class women have actually always worked, but that's probably a, a bigger discussion for another <laughs> time. But our working structures, particularly in the corporate world, are very much that a man can get to work, he can work from till six, he'll go home and there's dinner on the table. Um, And a lot of our highest paid corporate environments are structured around that way of working. We'll actually find now that younger men don't want to buy into that just as much as younger women don't. They want to be home when their kids get home. They want to be there at the weekend sports day. They want to do the school drop off. Um, And if we can share that load at home more equally, um, then we can not only empower women to return to work, but we, we create a better family life for everybody. So, what actually needs to change is not that the manager in the office um, suddenly has some epiphany and realises that he treats all the part-time women differently. What needs to change in workplaces is for men to start saying, I'm going to take up the option to work flexibly as well. I'm going to go home and do the school run. It stops being seen as a woman's problem and be- becomes a societal problem. Absolutely. And a lot of research has been done into men and why they don't take um, part-time work or flexibility because they're not often the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the cases studies which is interesting is Adam Fennessy who's the Secretary of the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning and he there you can google it and find him and he has many stories about being a stay-at-home dad Mm -hmm. um, for part of his career but also he lives in Bendigo so he commutes on V-Line. Yep. 
He gets to work and has a slightly later start time. He leaves earlier to be with his children, Mm -hmm. but he still is productive Mm -hmm. and he is essentially the CEO of that department in terms of the public service. And he's really a role model for um, men who may want to actually be more hands-on with um, their children and also, um, you know, share the burden with their partners, be they men or or women. Mm -hmm. And I guess if we're looking at um, a modern relationship and the expectations of younger uh, millennials, yep. <laughs> um, I would I would put myself in that bracket because I am technically in that bracket. The, the expectation is of equality, That's of right. responsibility and work. Some of the, the suggestion that you've got in, in this piece is that both parents could work four days mm-hmm. a week and they could work from home as well mm-hmm. um, in, and still work a five-day a mm-hmm. week. But you could work four days and then you've got two days there where your children weren't in childcare. That's right. Yep. Or that you were able to go volunteer at the school yep. um, to teach reading. That's right. So that's a pretty big thing and it's something that I've actually seen my peers start to come up with themselves. Yeah, look, people um, people in priv- more privileged positions are, are already doing this for themselves. Certainly my uh, husband and I work around that, work that way and we at Per Capita try to, to walk the talk so we have flexible working arrangements. We have a staff member that lives in Castlemaine and commutes and comes in some days and doesn't come in other days depending on what's required. I myself work from home one day a week. We have a young child. My husband and I coordinate um, the care our care of her and and try to minimise her time in childcare, even though we both work full-time. She's only in three days a week and we were able to make that work. But at the moment, that kind of benefit is really restricted to people in a a very few, very progressive and Mm. well-paid occupations. We're not seeing that. It's not the reality for people in um, shift work, for people who are um, in low to middle income jobs, um, jobs that are very inflexible. It tends to be um, confined currently to people in quite privileged positions. And what we're talking about is saying at a time when we are seeing unprecedented wealth in this country, when CEO salaries are so high, when profits for shareholders are absolutely robust, no matter what the Business Council of Australia tells you about needing tax cuts, they're doing okay. You know, the big business in this country is doing okay. Um, 26 years of uninterrupted economic growth is a hell of a story. But there are people throughout the economy that it's not working for. And an economy should work for the people. The people shouldn't work for the economy. And we're unashamedly saying there needs to be a a shift back in favour of working people. And Australia once led the way in this regard. You know, the the eight-hour day in the 1850s was a world-leading example of workers' rights and of, of a strong labour movement fighting to share the spoils of what then seemed like massive technological um, benefit that allowed people to work less. We're seeing the same thing now. So for all the talk that you will hear in political and media circles about technology's coming, robots are coming, they're going to take all the jobs and everyone's going to be unemployed and what the heck are we going to do about it? It's it's painting a picture of, of an inevitable technological takeover in the face of which we are expected to be passive and to lie down and let our, li- our, our ways of life be rolled over. Mm-hmm. And history shows us that that is not the way to approach it. We control our destiny as a people. If we decide that we don't that we want to. M- share the benefits of technology and share the benefits of advancing automation that means that things in the workplace can be done more quickly by allowing everybody to work a bit less but enjoy the same standard of living, then we can put measures in place and put legislation in place that makes that happen. Anyone that tells you otherwise is 
protecting their own vested interests, which is to keep making more and more profit and more and more money for people that are already very well off and not sharing the benefits of technological advancement throughout the economy. Absolutely. So let's just go into the detail of how you would make that happen. In the perfect world where we had a government who actually believed in evidence and um, (laughs) workers actually benefiting a lot more than they currently do and want wage growth, Mm -hmm. um, how would you actually implement something like a four-day working week? You'd have to look at, um, as I said, different approaches for different industries. Um, And I think almost certainly you you wouldn't just jump from um, a a 38 or 40-hour week as, as we have now straight down to a 30 or 32 hour week you would probably do it in a staged manner um, so look at perhaps um, dropping an hour a week for certain categories of workers over time um, you would have to look at um, changing shift arrangements for people in customer facing roles and uh, balance very much um, the expenditure and productivity of that sector against the reduced working hours the evidence um is, has already been produced in other countries. As I said, Sweden's experimented with this. There's been some research done into how many hours people are actually productive while they're at work. Um, we need to, you know, fully look at all of that in Australia and how that how that would apply to different industries here. Um, but essentially, the argument to be made is that as technology comes in uh, to more and more workplaces and automates a lot of processes that previously took a longer time and had to be done manually, the reduction in um, import into that workplace uh, is leading to the same or increased output. So it's about um, sitting down and negotiating with business owners and with those that represent capital and saying at the same time as you're going to get an increase in profits, you are either got, you should either be passing that on as an increase in salary or a reduction in working hours. And a mm. lot of people, um, as the Hilda data shows, uh, that are working full-time now would rather, 26 people would rather work less. And a lot of people, if they were offered the option between more money and less hours, would probably say, I'll stay where I am on income, but I'll take a few more hours back for my family. At the same time, people that don't have enough hours could then come in and fill those hours that need to be filled. Um, so there, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of um, research that needs to be done to work out how it would work across the economy. What we are saying at Per Capita is this is something worth thinking about as we are looking at a changing um, job market and a changing structure for employment due to a, a heap of um, technological innovations, globalisation, etc. Um, this is a conversation that we should be having to ensure that the people that are doing the work that's, that's making our economy so productive are sharing in the benefits. Absolutely. And also recognising that workers are human beings who yeah. have lives and aren't just there to work. That's right. Well, look, all of the evidence, Amy, that came out of this, the experiment in Sweden demonstrated that productivity went up for some very simple reasons. People got sick less. They were less stressed out. Um, they were more more alert and more on the job while they were at work because they had more leisure time and they weren't trying to do two things at once. So they were able to concentrate on their work without thinking, oh, I haven't paid that bill. I haven't picked up the shopping. I have. So mm, the work-life yeah. balance actually leads to happier and more productive employees. And that's what um, the shift to the eight-hour day 111 years ago was all about. I guess what we're saying is it's 111 years later, the economy, the standard of living 
now that we enjoy in the West compared to those days is unimaginable. We're very wealthy, we're very comfortable, we've got a lot more technology at our disposal and yet our working week, our structure of our what is a normal full-time working week hasn't shifted for a hundred years and it's time that we start thinking about that. Mm, and it's regressing. <laughs> you have to fight to have the eight hours protected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Emma, for joining us and sharing this amazingly different but actually not that controversial idea. It's, I don't think it should be. No, it certainly shouldn't. Um, yeah, if you want to check out Emma's piece and, and look into the data more and also that study um, which was conducted in Sweden in nursing homes, you can check it out. It's on the monthly website. If you just Google the shorter working week can work um, with Emma Dawson. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.